Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. I hope you're ready for a great workout today because this interview has the potential to literally rock you all the way down to your core. In a few minutes, you will meet Erica McDonald. She is the closest I have ever known someone to being immortal. I know that sounds crazy, but after you hear her story and learn more about the journey she's on, you just may agree with me. See, Erica has overcome cancer twice and proactively battled a third round. She's done more mourning than many of us can imagine, and she's come out the other side with a perspective you just can't achieve unless you've walked in shoes like hers. And I am not kidding, this woman is not crazy. And that in itself is an accomplishment, especially after you hear hear her path. And I'll be honest, I always prep for my interviews. I do my research, I create questions that you know, I may or may not get to. Um, one of the toughest parts of interviewing is staying present while thinking ahead. Uh, the, the big thing is I always want to make sure that I cover the important topics that I think are important to you and can help you in your lives. But during this interview, I was so sucked into the emotional journey Erica has somehow survived that I didn't even realize what time it was until we'd already gone an hour. I will also warn you that I had trouble composing myself. And if you get choked up when other people cry, then make sure you're not listening during an important interval workout. You may want to save this one for a more introspective time. (sighs) I hope you truly enjoy this episode. I know I came out of it with a greater appreciation for my own mortality and the way I choose to live my life. Let's bring her on. All right, are you ready to start? I'm ready. All right, let's do this. Um, Erica, thank you for coming out and being on the show and for um, making your way out to South Boulder. I know it's a trek these days. Please. <laughs> <laughs> and and like we, we were saying, uh, it's funny that it takes us getting together to do an official interview to actually hang out because you are one of my favorite people. I just feel the energy every time I see you. So, Oh, thank you so much. I cannot wait to get your story out there and help you know so many people feel your energy as well. So here's the deal. You have lived an extraordinary life. I have, I will say. <laughs> you have had experiences that most people cannot claim. And... I think we have to actually take people through the pain here and the torture and the tough stuff to uh, pull out some gems and wisdom and show them what is possible, what the human spirit can do. So, so let's just get it started here. Let's go back to when you were 19, 20, 21 years old. Okay, we'll do that. 
Um, so at the time I was in college and I was, I've always been very goal oriented. So I knew, okay, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to graduate in four years. And so what, um, anyway, I started gaining a bunch of weight and my parents were giving me a really hard time about it. Um, really cause they thought I was just drinking too much and partying. And I was like, no, really? Were um, you? I mean, <laughs> I, I had a great time. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but, um, not, it, not, it didn't warrant what was happening to my body. I knew something was wrong. I was tired all the time. So anyway, um, right after I graduated, I was home visiting my parents and I woke up in the middle of the night with a terrible, terrible pain. And, um, I went down to wake my mom up and she said, well, just crawl into bed with me. And she put her hand on my abdomen to give me a hug. And I kind of yelled out and she said, oh, we better go to the ER. So, um, of course, I I wasn't really scared. I just figured it was, you know, they thought I had appendicitis and they were going to do a quick surgery and no big deal. Um, and so the doctor said, you know, before we do this surgery, let's... Um, go ahead and get you um, some more testing. And they did. And they saw a, um, a cyst on my ovary. And they said, oh, it was probably just a cyst. Don't worry about it. Um, is, that, is that common? Like you know, young women have cysts on their ovaries? Yeah, you know, um, I had had um, several uh, problems um, just with cysts, really. Um, just painful menstruation. Um, and... Uh, and it was all attributed to cysts. So I, I thought, okay, well, that's fine. So the next day I went to see my doctor and, um, yeah, they, they were doing an ultrasound and literally freaked out. It was probably the most unprofessional I've ever seen a physician act, but they said, Oh my gosh, how are you even standing? You know, you're, you're full of fluid. We have to get you into the, um, for emergency surgery right away. And I just couldn't even. And so you're 21 years old. Yeah, I was 21. I was, was anyone with you? I was with my mom, luckily. Um, and so, yeah, they wheeled me in, um, prepped me for surgery, you know, and then they proceeded to remove a liter and a half of fluid and um, from my abdomen. And they they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Obviously, ascites is never a good sign. Um, and so then that just threw me into the to the cancer odyssey to my to my health um i was in the hospital for about seven or eight days in corpus christi um down in texas where i'm from and um they did a whole string of tests colonoscopy endoscopy doing everything poking and prodding and um finally one day the doctor came into the room and i looked at her and i could just tell um that she was pretty somber and in my gut and my heart, I just felt something. And I looked at her and I said, um, it's cancer, isn't it? And I'll never forget. She just nodded her head and her eyes filled up with tears. And, um, and my first question was, I was like, you know, how long do I have? And she just said, I, I don't know, Erica, maybe about two months. Um, and honestly, I, uh, my heart just sank. I felt like vomiting. I felt like the room was spinning. And the first words, I'm really ashamed to say it, um, but the first words were, I just want to die now. Um, that was my initial reaction was just, I just want to die now. Like why prolong this two more months? I was laying there, people come visit you and they're just looking at you, feeling sorry for you. And you just feel like a, like a little test animal. 
But why, why are you ashamed now that you felt that way? Um, just because, you know, life is such a gift, you know, and I'm such a fighter in everything. And so it, it's kind of embarrassing for me to say that my first thought uh, was defeatist. Was, was, yeah, yeah, was to give up. Um, luckily, I mean, um, obviously the flip switched. You know, I, I just kept saying, I said, you know, but I'm only 21 and I still want to get married and I want to have kids and I'm going to law school and I have to finish. Like I have all these things I still need to do. And I, and I just kept rambling all the things I had left to do. And she just kept nodding her head. And by this time she had tears rolling down her eyes. And, um, and my mom had gone home for a quick shower. My mom and my dad were great. They were always by my side. And, um, and I said, I want my mom and my dad and my brother. And, they didn't they hadn't told me but they'd already told my parents I had cancer and my brother was living in Rome and he was already on a plane back um so he arrived that night and um my parents rushed to the hospital they said oh you told her you know we wanted to be there we wanted to tell her and the doctor said well you know she just kind of figured it out sorry um so I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes because (laughs) like I just can't imagine my daughter like how okay you're sitting here across from me you experienced this i haven't but now i'm also like imagining someone i love being told that and like how do you even get through those first few days you know it's so funny you say that because my husband you know my husband chris and i were just on a trip and i we were driving in the car and i was i i just said i said chris you know i was missing the kids and i said i don't know how my parents survived like i cannot imagine seeing one of our kids go through what they had to see me go through i mean that that had to be honestly 10 times harder for my parents than any physical or emotional pain i suffered was nothing compared to what they went through for sure um was you know you were so young you don't hear about this kind of cancer with young women often is it super rare or is it just undetected uh, both actually. So ovarian cancer as a whole, it, most of the time they find it and it's too late because it is hard to detect. All of the symptoms are what women get, you know, bloating, a little bit of nausea, fatigue. I mean, everybody gets that. Um, usually it's an older woman. Um, my doctor says I'm always the footnote, you know, so I'm always the exception mm-hmm. to every case. So it was a rare cancer and it was even more rare that it was in somebody my age. And is it, do they know why it hits? No. Um, I mean, if you look up uh, facts about ovarian cancer, it's all over the place. It's, you know, people who um, had never taken birth control, people who are heavy, people who were, you know, but it's... Genetics? Anything? Like, no. no. I mean, sometimes there'll be some genetic factors involved. Um, But no, it's just one of those weird, that doesn't really get much attention, um, mm-hmm. I wish it would. And because the symptoms are things that we as women experience a lot anyway, just on maybe a lower level, we don't usually catch it till it's pretty advanced. Correct. Usually by that time it's gone outside to the uterus and into the, to the lining of the stomach and, um, and that's when they get it. So really what saved my life was the fact that I did have a cyst and a tumor that were, um, you know, they aggravated each other and my ovary burst, which is what caused me the pain that woke me up in the wow. night. So if I hadn't had that cyst, you know, 
So you're told you have two months to live. And most people would probably say, well, then I don't even want to have treatment because I would rather live these two months, you know, in a certain way. And what, um, what motivated you to fight? At that point, once I had my family around me, um, and having lived through the loss of my um, older brother, um, I knew that my family couldn't survive if I died. I, I knew my mom would go with me. I knew they'd have to be a, a double burial. Um, and so I I just had this little spirit, and I said, you know what, we're fighting. And um, my mom said, let's get her out of here. So um, we, we got into MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is like one of the best cancer centers in the world. And um, I had a great team, and they did an exploratory surgery, and um, that was really intense and um yeah sent me home and um but I mean looking back I'm telling you it's they cut me open from top to bottom pretty much um and I would had to be sponge bathed um I couldn't walk it was just the most awful awful pain it feels like a it feels like a like another life ago um but you you go through that and now especially um i think of all the people in the hospital um you just we walk around life every single day not realizing all the suffering that's going on um so i try to always keep my hospital days not too far back you make a really good point because you are like a shining example of someone who you're walking down the street and people see you and they're like, oh, she's probably got it all. Beautiful family, she looks amazing, she's attractive, she's brilliant. But what they don't realize is that everybody has a story. Yeah, that that's what I always say and that's why, you know, one of my favorite sayings is treat everyone kindly for everyone's fighting a great battle. You know, you never know what's going on in somebody else's life. And exactly like you said, um, you know, I don't know, when you've, I, when I lost my brother, um, uh, so many people didn't know what to say. And unfortunately, they tell you the wrong thing, which is be strong. You've got to be strong. Be strong for your mom. You've got to be strong. What? And what can we can we talk about that? Sure. I don't know what happened to your brother. Okay, so my brother is 19 and he's gorgeous. Um, and uh, his name's David, was David. And um, he had some fatty tissue on his left um, breast, and he was super insecure about it. He said it made him feel like he had like a man boob. Um, so it was really, which makes it even worse. It was such an unfortunate and unnecessary death. So he went in just to have the fatty tissue removed. It was just a simple day surgery. I'll never forget the morning of his surgery. He walked into my room and was looking in the mirror and asked if his shirt was okay. And I was like, why does it matter you're about to have surgery? You know, we were joking around and um, and he walked out the door and, you know, the last words I said, I, I, I went up, I gave him a kiss on his cheek and I said, let me give you a kiss so that everything goes all right. And um, he, he and my mom drove away and, you know, what was supposed to be a four hour surgery, he ended up on life support for um, five days. And, um, and then as a family, obviously we had to make the decision to, uh, turn off the machines cause his organs were, um, shutting down and he was brain dead. Um, so come to find out that during the surgery, um, the anesthesiologist accidentally overdosed him 
and gave him a medicine that he shouldn't have given him. So my brother went into cardiac arrest and his heart was stopped for 33 minutes. And um, he just wasn't able to come back from that. So, oh my God, that is so tragic. Yeah, it was, it was um, definitely something you, you know, it wasn't like he'd been sick or it was just such an unnecessary thing. I mean, literally I asked him, do I need to have my key? Uh, you know, from the bus, or will you be here to let me in? He goes, "Oh no, I'll be home by then. I'll I'll be here to let you in." And I found out about it because my my dad was at the bus waiting for me, and my best friend luckily was with me. And my dad just said, "Look, um, we're going to the airport to pick up your other brother, and we're going to the hospital because we're waiting for David to wake up. We can't get him to wake up from his surgery." And um, they thought, you know, we were like that. Okay. So yeah, so that this was is really <laughs> really hard stuff i mean you had to you had to go through this when you were so young your perspective on life like your foundation must be so rock solid to get through this and then to get through your own battles and what is your foundation like what is your sort of core belief that keeps you going um my belief is that we're all here for a reason you know and um i am not going to to leave this world until um, I'm until I'm ready. I mean, I know that God is ultimately the one that is in control of that. But um, so so many great things have come from from the different tragedies that have happened. And um, luckily, I have a strong faith. And you know, at time it's at times it's wavered. And I always say my relationship with God is like my relationship with anybody. You know, you can have times where you're frustrated, times where you're in complete bliss and happiness and love, and you're like, oh, my life is so great. Thank you so much. And then you're angry and you don't understand. But um, but I've one thing I always have told everybody is don't ever ask why something happens. Um, when something bad is happening and you ask why, even if you got the answer, would at the time would it make sense to you? You know, so and how would it help you? Yeah, exactly. So at that time, mm-hmm. nothing, no answer at that time is going to make you feel good. You know. Um, wow. Okay. So so you said that people often will give you advice that you sort of felt like wasn't the right advice, which was you need to stay strong and be there for other people. Why is that not advice that resonated with you and what would you tell somebody or tell yourself back then? Um, It's really affected me in the sense that uh, I always say it's a bunch of smoke and mirrors, you know? So I, um, it's very hard for me to really show somebody my real feelings. Um, Just once you've been hurt or you've been through a lot of loss and suffering, Um, I know eventually we might get around to talking about my dad, but you know, I was a family of five. I was totally happy. I lost my brother. That was one loss. And then later, um, losing my dad, you know, you just end up building a wall around you and you're afraid to show weakness, cry. Um, I didn't ever want to talk about my brother because I didn't want to make my mom sad. So I, I, I just learned to internalize a lot of my pain. And um, ultimately, it might be what made me sick is that, you know, um, not having a release, um, trying to act like everything is okay. It's um, like there was a 
toxic environment inside of you yeah you know mm-hmm. and i have a tendency to still to still do that my husband's really good about trying to pull it out of me and say okay you know he says that i'm the type of person that walks around with my spikes out and once I feel like I'm in a safe environment, then I'll pull him in. And he said most people walk around without their spikes out, and then so they people feel are walking around you. They're like, I can't get too close. I'm yeah. gonna get nipped by that thing. Which is funny because I don't think that about myself. But um, obviously, if the person that lives with me day in and day out, I think I, it, the thing about telling people to be strong is you're basically telling them don't be weak and what do we associate with weakness is crying or or sadness and um you know so but what if we could reframe and say that crying is strong yeah exactly and that's what i and feeling your feelings is strong that and that's Mm -hmm. what i would tell everybody going through anything i'm like do whatever you have to do if you have a child and you feel like you can't cry cry in the shower you know scream into a pillow do do something but you have to get your feelings out and i think that was always my problem is I never was good at um, getting those feelings out and you were able to learn how like did you have help did you get therapy how do you learn how to let it out so over time so my parents after my brother died obviously they sent me to a few therapists and I I it was just dumb to me I know that's awful but you know I felt like I'm sitting across from a 65 year old man you know, what does he have in common with me? Nothing, you know? And so here I'm supposed to talk about a guy that he didn't even know. Like, how could he ever understand what I'm feeling if he didn't even know my brother, you know? Um, So what finally made me, I was always anti-therapy until my dad started, um, my dad had early onset Alzheimer's and watching the love of my life um, die, you know, a painful, slow death that Alzheimer's is. Um, my best friend's mom made me promise her, you know, one day I broke down and I was just sobbing. And she said, Erica, promise me that you'll see somebody. And so I went and I, because I made the promise and I went in, I'll never forget, this is terrible. I sat there across from her and I said, look, I don't want to be here. The only reason I'm here is because I promised my best friend's mom that I would come. And I don't believe in therapy. I don't believe that you're going to be able to help me. And I think I'm just paying you to sit here and listen to me for an hour. And and what? Nothing's going to come of this. So there you go. And she was like, okay. <laughs> and turns out we ended up just hitting it off. And she helped me a lot. And you know why? Because you were honest with her right <laughs> off the bat. You were transparent. Yeah, transparent for sure. So um, maybe we should talk a little bit about your dad. Because you've brought it up now. And... Um, one of my thoughts, I know that he passed away from a disease very different than what you'd been through. Um, a disease that doesn't have a cure. It's a slow decline. You know when you get it, it's not going to be fun. Right. Um, I wondered if you had developed tools to deal prior, and it sounds like maybe not. <laughs> you know, maybe after, during. And I've thought about it too, what was better? Because David's death, although it lingered, you know, five days of life support and seeing him like that, it really wasn't long. It was unexpected, but it wasn't long, you know, and then have me myself facing my own mortality. That was even different than watching, you know, my dad. And of course, the way it starts is mom starts calling and saying, oh, your dad's starting to be forgetful and da 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 da. Um, but you know, that's kind of what so many 
you know, people say, oh, your mom's forgetting things or your dad's forgetting I'm things. I'm already forgetting <laughs> things. I mean, yeah. and, and we can joke about it. And, right. and But maybe I'll have a diagnosis soon. I mean, but it is a very normal thing. All those little signs, just like you, when you were finally diagnosed, it was, it were, they were symptoms that everybody gets. Yeah, That's exactly. what makes it so hard to know. Yeah. So what ended up happening was once, you know, my, my dad got to the point where it really started becoming obvious to everybody. I moved back to my hometown in Corpus Christi. And um, I luckily, I have no regrets. And that's the beauty of my relationship with my dad. You know, we were a family of five. I was the baby, the only girl. I was spoiled rotten by him. He called me sugar. Um, And, you know, watching somebody forget everything and I mean by the time he so I gotta say my mom was a saint because my mom took such great care for him that they say the caretaker often sometimes dies first um, because the Alzheimer's patients can live forever and ever and my brother and I told my mom look we all support you at any point when it gets to be too hard if he has to go somewhere to live so one day she calls and she says it's it's time and so when she said that we knew and um we, the four of us went and we took him and he had to be checked into a psychiatric hospital where they would evaluate him. They said for um, a week, uh, you know, which actually was actually supposed to be 48 hours. He ended up being there for two weeks. They had such a hard time getting him stabilized. And um, that was really hard to drop him off and to walk out of that building knowing, you know, is he going to wake up and be scared and he's going to wonder where my mom is and um, you know, just seeing somebody who I'd always been the apple of his eye, just start to forget my name and who are you? And, um, but I am really grateful because for the last, um, probably the last three weeks of his life, um, we had a routine down where, uh, my mom spent the day with him. And then, so I got to be a mom. And then, um, after bedtime, I would go to the hospital and I would crawl in bed with my dad every single night. I slept on his uh, hospital bed. And um, and then in the morning, I'd leave early and be home in time to take my little guy to school. And um, yeah, I had that down. And um, the day he died, you know, when he went to hospice, I was so dumb. I, I didn't realize that hospice meant we're, we're taking your dad to die basically. So I, I, I refused to leave his side. I, I rode in the ambulance with him from the hospital to hospice. And um, the hospice nurses kept saying, you know, is, he keeps holding on. Is there somebody that he's waiting for? And I said, no, he's seen his brothers and his sister. And we've all said our goodbyes. And, and she said, you know, I really think it's you. Um, and she was right, because I was not ready for him to go um, at all. And the way I get through things a lot is I write some poetry and I keep a journal. And so that night I just felt it. I knew it was time and um, we were all so tired and I wrote him a note. And as I was writing it, I was saying it out loud and I was telling him that he was, you know, the most handsome man and the smartest man and that I had had such a good life and with him and that he'd been such a good dad and a provider and that, um, that it was okay, that I, that I promised him that I would be okay and um, that it was time to go. And uh, that day, my plan was to stay with him, but I had to take my son to a birthday party. And as I was leaving, 
um, I said, Daddy, I know the thing you wanted most in the world for me was to be a good mom, so I'm going to take David to this birthday party, but I'll be back, so you wait for me. Um, you better wait for me. And sure enough, um, I walked into his room at about 8 p.m., and I said, Daddy, sugar's here, and I climbed into bed, and um, by 8.15, he um, was taking his last breaths, and I got to hold him for that. Oh, my gosh. And um, yeah. So I got to be with him. He he kept his promise and he knew that I would be okay. Oh my gosh, this is so hard <laughs> for me. Thanks for sharing. I'm sure everybody listening is feeling like I am right now. I might need a break here. Um, you know, I think there's a real lesson in letting go. Yeah, and Maybe you can talk about that a little bit while I recover. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know... Like I said, when when you face your own mortality, that that's one thing. And, and losing my brother, you know, they wouldn't let us stay in the room after we disconnected him for too much longer because they said what the body starts doing would be too hard for us to see. Um, I just remember walking out knowing I wouldn't see him again. Um, but holding somebody and watching them take their last breaths and knowing that their life on earth is over that was really a turning point in my life because I said, that's it, I'm done. Like, if there was anything in my life that I was unhappy with at that time, I got rid of it. Like, I cut so many things and I just became a different person. I realized even more than ever, this life ends and you better freaking live it. Wow, that is really powerful stuff i mean we all hold on to too many little things and where the ones that you let go of all having less than a positive impact in your life or why did you let go of things do you have an example yeah i was just trying to be what i thought everybody wanted me to be you know i was trying to be the perfect daughter that had the perfect house that had the perfect you know i was trying to be um perfect you know I sat on so many different boards did so many different charities um, I, I was constantly doing 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 um, but I felt so empty because I wasn't living my life I was living the life that I thought everybody wanted me to live um, and I took a lot of heat don't get me wrong when I said you know I'm changing this and I'm changing that and I'm you know, it, it was hard for my family, but I felt like the little lion in The Lion King that uh, when he finally roars, you know, and he's, he shocks himself. It took watching my dad die for me to get my, to get my, my roar. Oh, that is a great way to put it. We all need to aim towards discovering our roar. Yeah, right? and learning to say no. You know, if you don't want to do something, it's okay to say no. And one thing I hate is when people come up with lies, you know, oh my, you know, I don't feel good or whatever. Just say, you know what, I'm really busy or I'm tired. And guess what? Your friends are okay with that because they're your friends or whatever it is. Um, it's okay to not be perfect and it's okay to say no. Yeah. And honesty is better than trying to make people happy by creating an excuse that they're going to read through anyway. Correct. Oh yeah. my gosh. Well, 
We need to come back to your own mortality story. <laughs> yes, yes. But so, this has been like really incredible, just eye-opening stuff that everyone can benefit from. And, you know, we may all go through things that are not even close to the same level or bits and pieces of your story. The fact that you are still here in one piece as a beautiful like human that puts off this light in the world, I mean, it is a testament to what you've had to do internally, right? Well, thank you very, very much. I heard a priest say once, he said, you know, life can make you bitter or it can make you better. And um, I'm trying to be better. (laughs) There's only one little letter in there. It's different. (laughs) Exactly. It's easy to swing. You You are incredible. So okay, so I had the surgery. I'm at the hospital. <laughs> oh, we're going. <laughs> uh, you're, wait, we're back to being 21 years yeah, old. Back to being 21. You're fighting. You're doing it. You're pushing. And you know the crazy thing at the time, they they didn't think I'd need chemo. So for about two weeks, I didn't think I'd need chemotherapy, and I thought I was you know spared. And then I went to the hospital for a follow up, and you know I always had long dark hair like I do now, and I. Uh, remember looking around and seeing so many bald people and I thought next time I come I better put my hair up because it might hurt their feelings you know for people that don't have hair to see somebody with long hair and the next thing you know I'm sitting across from my doctor and he's saying Erica you know we think you need to have chemotherapy you know um it's gonna be tough you'll have six rounds um you're gonna lose all your hair and your eyebrows your eyelashes and I was just like wait what um I was so scared um each step is just like a blow yes you know and and it's and you know what it is it's the fear of the unknown Mm. um I I had I had never had a panic attack until before my first chemotherapy and I was just like my heart was racing and I was panicked I kept thinking I would just want to pull the needle out because you start reading you know all these things I was I had read Lance Armstrong's book about all the awful stuff he was coughing up and all this and I I I was just like terrified of what was going to happen and it was it was definitely tough I mean uh I was there for seven hours I'd get out super huge um for the first day or second day, I for the first couple of days, I'd just be tired. By the third day, I was just nonstop vomiting. It was it was brutal. Um, and one of the drugs they gave me actually settled in my joints to where I had a hard time walking. Um, and sometimes I'd have to get help walking. And it was really uh, intense chemotherapy. But, you know, I did it, lost my hair. And uh, went and bought some fabulous wigs <laughs> we like wigs there's something good that comes out of everything get you some different hair colors yeah and styles and- totally so um no it was it was it was tough but I got past it so I had you know um a big old two-year cancer-free party and then um a five-year cancer-free party. My doctors were really good about monitoring me just because it was such a fluke. Um, and so that kind of left, we laugh that I'm a cat, so I, I don't know which life this was, but <laughs> um, yeah, so I had a test and they found a polyp and um, I, I didn't feel comfortable having a polyp and um, fought with my doctor in my hometown about it. 
and said, you know, please just take this out. And he said, no, you're having a knee jerk reaction. Um, why would they say that? I don't understand why a doctor would be conservative after what you've already been through. You know, I think it was an ego thing looking back because he hadn't been my doctor through my first cancer. And I said, look, you know, I, and that is one thing um, to anybody who's listening, you have to be your own advocate. No one else is going to do it for you. If you feel that something is off, you know, for me, I, I, I wouldn't say I felt something was off and that's the craziest thing. If I hadn't have, you know, had this test, I was, I was actually having a test to find out if I could get pregnant. So I had an HSG, a histiosalpingogram. And that's basically, you know, they insert some, you know, you go to the radiologist, they insert something into your uterus, they shoot the dye and they see if, you know, it's flowing properly. So through my first cancer, I'd lost my right ovary and my right fallopian tube. So I had my left side left and um, I just wanted to see if it worked. And were you in a relationship at that point? I was, I was. And, um, and so as the doctor was leaving the room, he told the tech, he said, um, take one more image, would you? And when he said that right away, I, I felt something. I'm like, why does he want to like, just the way he said it made me nervous. When I left, I actually cried, um, in my car because I felt something weird by the way he said it. But then I went out of the country for two weeks and, when I came home, I had those messages on my phone over and over saying, Erica, you need to call us, Erica. So I called them and they said, look, you have a polyp. It's probably no big deal. And then I kind of got into an argument with my doctor because I said, look, just take it out. And he wouldn't. So finally, I called MD Anderson and they said, well, just come up here. We'll see you. And ironically, they told me the same thing. It's probably just a polyp. It'll go away on its own. Don't worry about it. And luckily, because they know me, um, they said, okay, if it's bothering you that much, we'll just do a DNC and take it out. So I went in on a Thursday for the surgery and um, was home on Friday resting. And the phone rang and it was my doctor. And she said, hey, Erica, how are you feeling? And I said, you know, I'm a little bit sore, but I'm okay. And she said, um, so who are you with? Are you alone? And when she said that, I knew um and my mom happened to be walking by with a big handful of towels. And I said, no, my mom's actually right here. And my mom must have known too, because I just never forgot. She sat down on the bed and the towels just fell. And, um, and she said, Erica, I'm calling you to tell you that it wasn't a polyp, you were right. It was, um, it's uterine cancer and it is extremely aggressive. She, was, she said, I've never seen a tumor like this. I, I called in several colleagues and um, we need, this was on a Friday. She was like, we need you back in Houston on Monday um, and you're gonna have to have a hysterectomy. Um, so I, I didn't, so at this point, once again, I'm like, wait, what's going on? And this is over the phone. And, and she said, Erica, do you know what this means? And I said, what, I have cancer. And she said, and you will never have biological children. You know, we have to take everything. And honestly, Nicole, that was what upset me more than anything was, um, yeah, I had cancer again and I was like, oh, great. What I thought I, I'm like, but the kids thing killed me. So yeah, Monday I was back up there. Um, uh, and, and it's kind of like, yeah, you've been through the rodeo, you know how to do cancer. 
But you had your heart set on having your own babies. Oh, that was my thing was I said, I'm going to be a mom. Well, I'm going to be a wife, a mom. I'm going to be a lawyer. You know, I had my I had my life planned out. And obviously it hasn't gone the way that I had it in my head. Well, we're going to get there <laughs> because um, I think a lot of those things still came to pass. Absolutely. So, so, so how, I mean, she says very aggressive form of cancer. I mean, were they immediately worried that it was everywhere? And how did, did you have to go through the chemo again? So I didn't have to go through the chemo again. I almost wish I would have. I know that sounds terrible or it doesn't make sense, but I, um, the, the tumor, the way it was growing, it was almost out of my, um, into my stomach. And so they got it just in time. Um, so I didn't have to have the chemo, but I looked, so basically I have this surgery that was awful. And I mean, awful in the sense it wasn't painful, but emotionally awful. And I was a walking shell of a human being. Like I was a zombie. I was going through the motions and I was so empty inside because I couldn't have children. I didn't feel like a woman. And it's, it's hard to understand because I haven't been in your shoes. So, you know, the practical side is like, yeah, but you're here right? and you're healthy. And wouldn't you rather have that than, you know, the alternative? Once again, yes. But the people that tell you this are people that have had kids and people that haven't been through it. And so it's hard when it's not somebody who has, you know, been on the same journey as you have and the reason I say that it would have been easier had I had the chemo is because then I would have looked sick and I would have had a little bit of time to kind of digest it but because I didn't look sick people would say oh you look great and oh you know they thought I was fine and really I was just dying inside dying and you were in a relationship at the time and maybe expecting that you with this person may have a child like obviously you're not with this person anymore right yes and there was so many things like i said i always thought i'd have three or four kids i had them all named out i knew my first son would be david it was just a it it was a loss to me it was another death because it was the death of the idea and the children that the biological children I'll never have. So you've been in your life going through these periods of mourning. Yeah, there's been definitely a lot of uh, mourning and sadness. This is a... Uh, and and did, did real actual depression rear its head? It was so bad that um, I couldn't get out of bed. I really couldn't. I couldn't get out of bed. And about five o'clock or anytime I knew somebody might be coming um I'd jump up and take a shower and pretend like I'd been dressed for the day and um I wasn't answering my phone you know I had friends you know my good friends that know me well enough that know oh Erica's gone to her hole you know that would just knock on the door and sometimes I'd answer most of the time I wouldn't they'd leave you know a flower or a book or something but I just couldn't um, I couldn't move past it. And the worst it got was um, physically harming myself. And that's so hard to talk about. But um, I knew I would never kill myself because I knew that my mom and dad couldn't survive it. Um, but I didn't want to be, 
it's like I wanted to be on earth and I felt so guilty because I thought, Erica, what's wrong with you? You should be so grateful. You know, you're, like you said, you're still here and you can still- It's like you're guilty. You feel guilt for being here still. Absolutely. I felt guilt that I wasn't happier, but I didn't think there was life beyond having, like if I felt like if I couldn't have children, then it, what was my life? You know, what was my meaning at that point? So I didn't ever actually get a knife and hurt myself, but I had this these recurring thoughts that I wanted to hurt myself, and that was super scary for me. Luckily, I had enough wits about me to know, okay, Erica, that's not a good choice. Don't do it. Um, I would scratch my skin a lot to see if I could feel it because I felt so dead that I wanted to see if I could even feel anything. Um, and I know that's why people cut themselves. I know because they want to see if there's blood in there because they just don't feel anything. Um, and so, yeah, it was hard. Um, what got me out of it was uh, a little boy named Isaiah. And you don't even know this. You're going to die. Um, I, got, I need more Kleenex. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Gosh. I got a call about a little boy named Isaiah. And he... His mother was a heroin addict and his grandmother was raising him and his grandmother had contacted an attorney because she couldn't afford to keep him anymore and she was tired. And um, so, yeah, I was like, oh, you know, Isaiah was two years old. Let's do this. Um, So on your own, you were... Actually, I keep skirting around it because I, it's so hard for me to talk about. Not hard, um, but I was married before and... um, it's not anything that I'm ashamed of because we were both young and it's so sad. Um, we did not love each other at all. We, we respected each other. He was one of my brother's friends who had actually also thought about being a priest. And I met him and I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, he's Catholic, he's a virgin, he's nice. Um, and we never dated. Um, you know, I would say when I first, I met him in August and he lived in France, he lived in a whole nother country. And obviously we didn't have any communication. I was just his friend's little sister. And he, he came to visit when I was sick. And so he didn't know I was sick. No one knew I was sick. And so he's getting the news at the same time, like, oh, this girl's dying. You know, later on he admitted I wanted to go home, but I didn't want to be the guy that left the girl with the cancer. And, um, that's heavy. Yeah. So I, when I thought I had two months to live, um, you can imagine, you know, I kept looking at the clock and I was having anxiety to go to sleep. And I was like, I I always wanted to get married. And I pretty much pressured him into marrying me. I feel so bad. Um, but you know, it was just like, well, I'm not going to make it anyway. I want to have a wedding. I got married. I had no hair. Uh, my hair, I mean, I had like bird hair, my, um, hairdresser had, when she cut my hair for the chemo had kept my ponytail without telling me. Oh, and she put like a little (laughs) bun at the back. Like it was so crazy just so I could have a first dance with my dad and have my dad walk me down the aisle and stuff. Um, but yeah, it was, um, a really great thing. So when I talk about when my dad dying, that's when I said, you know, it's time. And only because, you know, 
it was so fake and to the point that we would hold each other crying how unhappy we are you know there was no um intimacy at all you know we slept in separate rooms on our honey i mean separate beds on our honeymoon even and it was something i was too embarrassed to talk about even to my closest friends it's like how do you say you know i don't do anything with my husband um but i understand why it happened i mean you you wanted to fulfill like this bucket list thing in a life that you thought was going to end right and he probably a very like giving and emotional person who wanted to help you do that maybe he's somebody who just wants to take care of people it's like the relationships that you forge during difficult times may not be be relationships that will be with you during the non-turbulent times like it's a hard thing i know i've had them too i I wasn't married when i was sick but you know i get it like why that would happen and i get why there's like some kind of weird shame or emotion around talking about it but yeah it's understandable the hard part is how to end it yeah and that's the thing and the good thing is is because we both i mean literally after the wedding when you go to the hotel and we're both standing in the room and I said, is it too late to get like, is it too late? It was a train wreck. He had tried to leave back to France. I had begged him not to go because I was so embarrassed. The invitations had already gone out. Like we all knew. And even my best friends now tell me, we all knew you were making a mistake, but nobody wanted to tell you because we thought this was the end. And we're like, okay, let her have her fairy tale wedding. Um, but ultimately I didn't and I stayed. And so luckily, but it was very sad. We had two very different lives. We had nothing in common. Um, you know, I have nothing negative to say about him. It was a really amicable divorce. I mean, it was, you know, Vincent it was name. When my dad died, I said, I can't live this fake life anymore. I'm not living. I don't care if it causes shame to my family in a very Catholic family. It's causing shame to your family, to my family, but we can't live this lie anymore. This isn't living. And, you know, he agreed. And um, how, how long were you married? Uh, let's see, eight years. Oh, wow. So yeah. through your second diagnosis. Through all of it. And, you know, cancer. the craziest thing is even through all of that, the one that would go to the doctor with me was my mom. You know, after mm. my surgeries, I was staying at my parents' house. Wow. Like it was very... Um, it was very lonely um, to, well, yeah. I mean, you didn't have the most important relationship in your life fulfilled. It was there from the outside looking in. Right. But there was no fulfillment. You're a passionate and emotional person. I know this about you. When Tim, my husband, met you, you were dancing on it. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's how I see you in living your life out loud out there yeah and And this was not this was putting a layer on top of it and faking it oh it was the ultimate faking i mean that he you know was from this tiny little village and nobody you know it was frowned upon to have jewelry and makeup and everything that's me you know like you know very quiet people and it just totally you know so i always felt like i was living a lie i was putting on a show i was in a, a, a relationship that was wrong um but everything looks great from the outside don't get me wrong and inside it was just the emptiest life and and i look back on that and i feel so much guilt like that but that's why i say my dad's death gave me life you know watching him take those breaths gave me 
hey, I'm not living for you or you or you. I'm living for me because all this has been a lie up to that point. Um, so that was my snap. Wow. So Isaiah, um, two years old, and basically, yes, he comes over and uh, right away it's like, you know, start doing this transition where his grandma would come over and we'd play and then she'd leave and then finally where she transitioned out and that was um in august and um sadly his his mom re-entered the picture after about a year and wanted him back even though she was in prison and um we couldn't get her rights terminated and so it turned into a really long expensive and emotional legal battle and um and sadly, I had to give Isaiah back, which was uh, really wow hard. But he'll always be, in my mind, um, the lesson learned from that was how to be a mom. Wow. Isaiah. And um, so Isaiah was a gift to you. And he, he made you realize that, like you said, while you couldn't have your own children now, it didn't matter because you could still be a mom and then maybe there would be some other kids. Right. That's that he's what snapped me out of it. It's taking yourself out of you. Um and so Isaiah. And what what does being a mom mean to you? Like what kind of mom are you? Oh goodness. Are that's you tough? Great- are you strict? Are you just overly loving? Like how does Tell, tell me about Erica the mom. Oh, goodness. It depends on the day. So sometimes, no. Well, I, wait, we should probably tell Yeah, we people. should talk about that. So <laughs> after, so for a while there were, so, oh gosh, this is, so I was working and um, a lady that I was working with found out I couldn't have children and she asked if I would adopt and I said, absolutely. And she said, you know, my sister's pregnant, but she's about to get an abortion and I said, please, please tell her not to get an abortion. And um, I went to go meet her for lunch. And she said, look, I just need $1,500. And I said, I'm not here to give you money for the procedure, but I will take the baby. And she was so scared because she thought that um, we you know, might change our mind or something like that. And I said, I promise you, I'm not going to change my mind. So anyway, it was really cool. I got to be in the room when David was born. Um, and uh that was really awesome. So from the second he was born, got to be there with him. And you um, got to name him David. Yeah, I did. I got my David. I <laughs> sure did. I'll never forget that in the in the um, nursery there feeding him and the doctor comes in. And of course, I'm like in super tight jeans and probably ridiculous boots and stuff because he came at like very quickly. Um, and he said, oh, is this your baby? It's, and I said, yeah, this is my son. And he's looking at your yeah, body. He's, and he's looking like, at me. He's looking at my son. Like, and not to mention, David is African-American. So I, there was a major disconnect. And But my point is, we are so... I From the second... And this is what my mom kept telling me all the time. Erica, adoption's okay. And like I said, I would get mad at her because I'm like, you say that, but you had three children. I, I want to know what my my body would do. I, I want to feel the kick. I, I All the things that I wanted to go through. Um, but she said, no, I care. I promise you, once they put a baby in your arms, and it was so true. Like, I didn't see him as being another color. I still don't. Like, to me, he couldn't be any more like me. Um, so... Um, 
I saw him winning a bike race on your uh, <laughs> yeah. Facebook feed recently, and he is a very happy, and you can tell, loved yes, child. He's definitely loved. And I always tell him, I'm like, you know, you are my little miracle, because he is in so many ways. Um, he's he's the miracle that got me over losing Isaiah, because, um, you know, that was another depression that I went through for a while, and David was crawling around on the floor, and I remember thinking, I have to get up for this child. Like he needs me. This baby needs me. Um, and he's the one that made me get up. And, you know, when I went through my divorce, my ex husband moved back to France and doesn't really have anything to do with um, his life. So that's been um, really nice now with my, with, with Chris, my husband, um, that he's adopted him and he has a hundred percent taken him as his own. And, um, you would never know, you know, that we hadn't done it together from day one. Um, so you were single momming for a while. Single momming. And it was okay, like, because I was so happy. Like, I was, it was one of those things I'll never forget when I moved out. You have to understand, I moved out of this great house into this apartment, uh, you know, a great townhouse. Um, and it was just the two of us, you know, me and David. And I remember the walking around and doing like the uh, risky business slide in my socks and being like, I'm free. <laughs> like I felt so happy. Like I can decorate how I want. I could get whatever plates I want. I can do anything. I was just so happy. I never had a night of crying or sadness. I, I went to bed every night so happy. You were, for the first time, something had liberated the real you. Yeah. You I, didn't answer to anyone else. You could be who you were, no judgment. And it was like, I could just feel the lightness. Yeah. I was like, hallelujah. Um, so, so let's talk about round three. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so went through the, uh, ovarian, then the uterine, and then, um, there was a spot on my left breast. And by that time I was, I knew that David was about to be born, but I didn't have him yet. And I thought, I'm not going to go through cancer with a newborn baby. I'm just not. And and so I talked to the doctor and I said, I think I just want to take them off. Just take them. And she said, look, I'm all for it. But, you know, you're going to have to go talk to a psychologist about this. So the psychologist sat me down. Are you sure? But I said, look, just take them. Because it wasn't um, uh, showing cancer? Or? They... It was it was suspicious. They said we'll keep an eye on it. So I was oh, like, I don't want to have a ticking time bomb we'll in me. Keep an eye on yeah. it with what you've been through. Exactly. That's how I felt. I'm like, I don't want to keep an eye on it. Like every night going to bed with my heart thinking, oh, is this going to turn it to be cancer? So I said, just take them. So yep, I had a prophylactic double mastectomy, um, and honestly after the surgery and after they saw the cells and stuff my doctor said oh you absolutely made the right choice so I'm really really grateful I did and of my surgeries I'll say that one was the most um all my other surgeries had been you know internal so I couldn't see them but I could obviously feel the pain afterwards this one I could see and that was really really hard even though it was my choice you know it doesn't make it any easier um so because I didn't have implants or anything at the time. So we wake up in your concave and it was really rough. But um, when you, um, you know, for women out there who've been through this, and I mean, October's a big month in this world. 
for uh, supporting people who've been through breast cancer and breast cancer awareness. Um, when you decide to get implants and when you decided, like, what was the psychology behind it? Because in, in a way you could be like, well, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to get double E's and like put it out there, you know, or you could not get any or you could get tattoos or mm-hmm. there's so many different things you can do. You know, what, what, what did it symbolize to you to do some reconstruction? I just wanted to look as normal as I could with, you know, very much in keeping with my weight and my height and everything, you know. And so I'll never forget my doctor said, you know, if I have to, you know, err on the side of, you know, do I go bigger or smaller? I'm like, hey, I didn't go through all this pain to end up with little bitties. <laughs> like, if you can't decide when you're in there, you know, because uh, it's not like you could look at these implants and say, oh, that's how I'm going to look. So she, you know, I had tissue expanders. So every week I was going in there stretching my skin back out, which was Mm. super painful. And, you know, we decided we'd try to do the nipple sparing. And they said, well, you know, they could turn green and they could fall off. And I was like, well, I'll I'll try it. Um, Luckily, I didn't have that happen. Um, But, you know, what's really sad, Nicole, is I don't know how much of this you know, but there's a lot. Luckily, my insurance was great in all this because of my history in picking all of this up, I had no problems getting them. A lot of women can't go through the reconstruction either because of insurance or what have you. And so they have, um, breast prost, you know, they have to get a prosthesis. Those are so expensive. And there are so many women that walk around with pantyhose that they fill with bird seed to, to in, in lieu of being able to afford a breast prosthesis. Wow. So, I was really involved with my um, cancer society and doing a lot of fundraising to um, raise money specifically for women in need of um, those those prosthetics. That's that's luckily I'm I am one of the lucky ones. A lot of women aren't fortunate that they get to do that. Are you uh, still active with any charities that support what you've been through? Uh, once I left. Um, Texas, no, I haven't been. I've just been trying to kind of acclimate to my Boulder life. And I'll always, you know, people know they can call on me. Um, I was actually just honored this past um, this past year by the Cancer Society down in my hometown for some different things. And that was super special to me because, you know, but when I did it, and I think that's why I've taken a break, I was 100%. Like, you know, I was chairing the very first, first relays for life that were going on down there. I was, you know, on the board of cattle barons and all these fundraisers. And it was just too, I got so into it that now, um, I always like to say these different things that have happened, they're different chapters in my life, but they're not my book. They're not my story. Interesting. Um, yeah. So to me, I'm, it's a chapter and my heart will always be there. And Anytime somebody's diagnosed, a friend always calls and says, hey, can you talk to this person? And I will share anything and everything and every tip that I can. Um, But right now, my focus is really 100% just my family. Well, let's talk about that. Well, first of all, let me backtrack for a second. You did do a speech at Skirt Sports, and it went viral. (laughs) And okay, everyone listening, there's roughly 10,000 views on this video now, and... um, you are you have not only an in, just a story that is absolutely rocks people's worlds, but the way you share it and what you put out in the world is a true gift. 
And so if it comes back around and you have opportunities to do some speaking or do some sharing like that, I'm going to encourage it. And for those of you listening, if you want to get Erica to come out, you're going to have to really rally her at this point. (laughs) So you may have to wait a few years, but I want you to know that that is what you do put out in this world. The fact that we're talking about all of these things today. I mean, we are over an hour. Oops. Yeah. (laughs) I I didn't even notice until this moment. And I still have a few things that we're going to talk about. Do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, sure. Okay. Because what you have to say is important and you will change lives and you already are. Well, and honestly, one thing that's super important is, you know, something beautiful. The only thing that hasn't beauty hasn't come from I have really have a hard time finding beauty in my brother's death I'll always struggle with that one but through my cancers not being able to have children you know now having three so we have David that's nine twins that are three um you know open to more these are children that needed a home whether I was here or not like if they hadn't come to me I don't know who where they would be but they're they're mine and I can't imagine loving them anymore and you know it's always a struggle because you always want to do for your kids and I know you and Tim you guys work so hard and you can see that at your home you know it's a home but you work from here as well same with our house and it's just finding a balance of um being able to give your kids and do for your kids without doing too much because you don't want them to be spoiled you want them to appreciate but and letting them see that mommy and daddy love each other and that mommy and daddy are actually first. And that's one thing Chris and I really, really work on is before we can be good parents is we have to be rock solid together. And that means he comes first. And I know that that's going to rub some people the wrong way. But um, if I don't put my husband first and if he doesn't put me first, then the whole house crumbles. We're the foundation. And, you know, Anytime, you know, I go to every single race of his and, you know, it's twofold a because I do the business side of it, but B, um, it's important for me to be there to support him. And it's important that our kids see that mommy and daddy are a team because I want them to have what we have. I actually love this outlook and I've never thought about it that way. Wow. So who's this Chris guy? Like when did when did this character yes, come into so Chris? What chapter was he? Oh goodness, chapter four hundred and seventy three. <laughs> no, um, so Chris, so I I did a marathon as a as a kind of like a dare, and the next year I was going back to do it again, and I I a friend knew Chris and introduced us and there was absolutely nothing romantic um we were bantering for the two or three days we were together but it was just all in good fun um was that on both sides or just on no you're totally side? both sides to, to the point my best friend was like erica cerna you stop flirting with him and i was like i'm not flirting and she was like yes you are um i didn't think i was but you know maybe looking back yeah i remember thinking oh he's cute but he was living we just it wasn't he was in a relationship. He was living in Arizona. I was in Texas. I was having the time of my life. Like I was nowhere. I had told all my friends, I'm not getting married again. I'm going to stay single. And just because I was so happy, Nicole, I was so happy. Didn't want anybody. So anyway, um, my friend's husband called me a few months later and said, look, Chris is a, 
you know, he doesn't have a manager and the best is yet to come. And I think at this time he'd won five Ironmans and the joke was, I didn't know what an Ironman was. I thought they just lifted weights. And so I came on to be like help with branding and PR and, you know, logo and go talk to sponsors and that kind of thing. And so you can imagine the first time I called it, to talk to somebody I was like yeah so they they run and they swim and they bike and I remember Chris in the background looking at me like no no you've got it wrong and swim bike run I was like yeah so I wasn't exactly the best manager to start with I think I'm pretty awesome now so um, but yeah so we started working together once again nothing romantic and then uh, just through the course of working together you know once he got out of his relationship and and I think that's really we wouldn't be together if if it had been any other way because he got to see me had I thought there could be anything romantic I would have had the wall up I would have had the spikes out but because I had put him in a friend zone you know he got to see me be a mom you know he met David I would have never no one ever had ever met him no one I was not even interested in dating um and so yeah he met my mom everybody and it was just because nothing was going to come of it um so anyway it all happened very naturally and he's awesome and yeah so he knew the package it was crazy erica that dances on tables um that has a son and he was three at the time and um yeah he he was all for it um the funny thing is he swore to everybody he'd never be with anybody that had a child and um so he broke his rules too (laughs) but yeah so we we dated for my therapist the one that i talked to said you can't marry anybody or you can't get engaged until you've known them. It takes 18 months to know somebody. So I was super firm on that. They had like a an actual cutoff date? Oh, yeah. It was oh, like... geez. I got married less than 18 months after I met Tim. <laughs> look at y'all now. But she would tell us, she's like, you need 18 months to figure out what kind of person. So I'll tell you what, right away, right after 18 months, Chris had a ring and he was like, will you marry me? I'm like, yes, it's been 18 months. <laughs> End of day. Yes. So when did the two little twinners come along? They came along. Uh, so we got married in May, May 24th. And of what year? Oh, 2014. So okay. it hasn't been that mm-hmm. long. Um, 2014. And then the week that we got home from our honeymoon, I got a phone call and hey, there's a girl, she's pregnant with twins and they're due next month. <laughs> and Chris was on the treadmill running and I ran over to him and I said, Chris. And he said, what? Call the girl, call her now. And so I called her and it was really, it was a sad situation. Um, you know, she she was in a bad relationship, couldn't afford to have them, had, didn't have any other children, was living at home. And yeah, so got to go to the doctor's appointments and there again, they were different because it was a C-section, but the, the nurses had put us in a, in a conference room right next to the operating room. And so as soon as they were born, they wheeled the twins into us. And there's the most awesome picture a nurse took. It was so candid and um, of just us looking at each other and looking at the babies like, what is going Like, I never thought I would have twins. You know, I thought David was it. That was a miracle in itself. Um, I can't go through an adoption agency because of my cancer history. They won't take my application. So it was a private adoption, but um, Chris had always wanted twins. And um so yeah did it, you I recall there's something about like you couldn't tell people till you actually had them I was just afraid to take my family and friends on the journey again because losing Isaiah was really hard um that was another loss for all of us um and so I didn't want to you know a lot of times people change their mind in Texas the biological mom has 48 hours to change your mind and so um 
I didn't want to get everybody's hopes up and, you know, do a little baby shower and all this and then come home and have nothing. So I thought it's better to just say nothing. So we said nothing and then got to call people and be like, surprise, (laughs) you have uh, a niece and a nephew. Oh my gosh. Wow. You have a very full life. Yeah. So it's fun, you know, going back to what kind of parents are we, we, um, I look at them, all life is a miracle, you know, from your own life to the life that you create um, or the life that you can help create. And they are my little miracles. We, none of us look alike. I mean, obviously the twins have, they have blue blue eyes and blonde hair, um, but none of us look alike and I love it. We are, um, we're us and, you know, and there may be more of you someday. <laughs> we don't know. My mom and everybody else is probably like, no. All right, I have I have two final questions. Here. Okay, why is dancing on tables important? It's so it's just a me thing of you have to just stand up, dance, love, laugh. Just, I mean, for me, when I stand on a table, it is symbolic of hey, I'm here, and I'm dancing. And honestly, Nicole, I would stand on any table and just start dancing. Like I don't even have to have like a few cocktails in me. It's just like that feeling that life gives me when I think about it, you know, is just my heart beats and I get so excited about life that I just want to dance on the table and just be like, woo, celebrate it. We've got to have a contest here. (laughs) I'm going to do a contest. It's not a dance on table video. It's going to be something like... uh, What's your song? What's your dancing on table song? Oh my gosh. Do you think we should run this contest? That, that would be awesome. Yeah, that would all be. Right, all right, we're going to run that. So everybody, you're going to check it out. It'll be on the show notes and we're going to do it on uh, Facebook. What's your dancing on table song? Yes. What's yours? Oh my, anything. <laughs> my karaoke song is Baby Got Back, only because I know the words and uh, I love it. But love um, it. no, any any song, anything. Mine might have to be the throwback all the way to high school when I was an Erasure fan. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> hey, give a little respect. Oh, yes, totally. <laughs> all right. Well, here we're on to the final question. Okay. Okay. So if you could give our listeners one final nugget, one piece of advice so they can run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? It would go back to just treat everybody kindly because you don't know what they're going through. And it's so hard to not judge people. Like you can look at somebody and think, I'll never forget. I parked in a handicapped spot once and I didn't have the spot, but it was a hot day. I didn't, I was going through chemo and I needed to run into a building and somebody rolled down the window and said, Hey, you jerk, you're not supposed to park there. And they yelled at me. And I felt like saying, if you only knew, like I can barely walk and I'm so sick. Um, but they didn't know. And that's my point is we have to, you don't know what someone's going through. And even if they look like it's, they're okay ask people, how are you? And everyone says, oh, I'm fine. But, you know, especially with your friends, no, how are you really? And and let them know that you're listening. Let them know that you, that you really do care. You know, um, that's my thing is just be kind and be present because I think of that with what I was going through. You know, 
I was so depressed, but nobody would ever guessed it because I always, my, my grandmother always said, when you feel your worst, dress your best. So I would put on my makeup was my armor and I'd put on the best clothes and the best thing. And I looked like a million bucks, but inside I, I, I mean, I was wanting to cut myself. So just be kind, don't judge people and, and just just be a good person and be open to life. Just just live it. Get rid of toxic. I love it. Man, <laughs> thank you for not giving up when they said you have two months. No, no way. No thank way. You. Thank you for pushing through every freaking battle. I'm so grateful that you're here. Yes, thank you. I am grateful to be here too. Well, everyone, how are you doing? Um, are you okay? I'm finally okay. Uh, it's funny. I interviewed Erica at my home studio and when we were done, I was like, holy cow, Erica, I am so drained. To which she said, well, I feel a lot lighter now, (laughs) which I can totally understand. I give her so much love and respect for putting herself out there. As Erica says, treat everyone kindly because you don't know what they're going through when you can truly do this you are free to let go of judgment fear and anger toward yourself and others and you can finally find beauty in everything around you everything becomes lighter doesn't it all right i will leave you now to recover from this one i know it took me a while but that's what our workouts are for right So on that note, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.